You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs, and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we are joined by Chad Barrowford, who is the technical lead at Thorchain. Thorchain is working to solve one of the biggest problems facing the cryptocurrency industry by enabling multi-chain, decentralized exchange of cryptocurrencies in a truly decentralized manner. With that. Chad, a very warm welcome to you on our show from both Nikhil and myself. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So, could you start off by telling us about your background and uh, walking us through your crypto journey so far? Uh, you know how you got started, and finally, what led to the creation of Thorchain? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I, I got into software engineering um, back, I think it was like two thousand and eight, uh, and for me, it's kind of a, a a funny story, but I, I I saw that movie Iron Man with Robert Downey Jr., like the original first film. And I thought the Jarvis character in that film was really really cool, and so I thought I learned to code and and, and build that, and I ended up doing it. And it took me about a year to do so, and uh, it was kind of like a, a fifteen minutes of fame thing that the uh, the Boston Globe did it talked to about and Popper Mechanic and just kind of blew up online. And uh, it was kind of like my foray into crypto, and not to crypto, but into programming. And I kind of fell in love with it in, in, all, in, in a lot of ways. And then ever since then, I've just been, just been building whatever I can think of to, to you know, that I thought was interesting or, or an interesting computational science problem to, to kind of think about and, and try to solve. And then it wasn't until uh, 2017 when I decided to, uh, you know, basically sell everything that I owned and start traveling around the world. And in, in doing so, I met these guys uh, in Croatia who were these big, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum guys. And they were telling me all about, you know, blockchains and Bitcoin and Ethereum and smart contracts and like all these kind of things. And I just thought it was like so interesting and so, you know, u- unique as a technological development. And so I spent like a month in a cave basically just, um, well, maybe closer to two weeks, but like I spent a, a lot of time by myself in coding uh, and I built a blockchain from scratch. I just kind of hand rolled one. As a uh, um, as a academic sandbox to to help me understand um, you know what a blockchain is and how it's structured and how it fundamentally works in a lot of ways and so I experimented with building a few different uh, mechanisms just to kind of play with them and kind of like you know see how they work uh, and so once I did that I realized how significant this technology is and how it could uh, change and 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 revolutionize the world just just as the 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 car did and the airplane and the internet and the telegraph like just it's on that level of of significance and I just wanted to dedicate myself to it. Nice. Which which technology did you use? Which programming language? Uh, back then it was Python. Uh, Python's a really good language. It's a high level language and it's really good to just kind of work out some ideas and just play around with some things. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm familiar with it. I use it every day. I think it's oh, I an awesome it. language. Yeah. It's a great language. I think it's actually on my GitHub. If somebody goes to my GitHub and look for this thing called Black, which was like 
it was supposed to be like blockchain slack. It was, it was, but it wasn't like a real project. It wasn't like a real thing to build. It was just, you know, messing about. Right. Yeah. The code, yeah. the code is terrible. It's, it's awful code. It was just, you know, I was just mucking about with it, but, but it I'm sure you're being so. modest. Uh, but I mean, so do go on. So, so you built this project and then, and then what, what happens? Um, and then it just became, you know, months of study effectively, like reading as much as I could about the industry, about the projects happening, about the space listening to people talk um, and just, just kind of diving into it as much and as deeply as possible to deepen my understanding of the field. And, and so I just started doing that. And I started to like reach out to various projects and try to contribute. Like uh, the Light Network was one of the ones that I uh, opened a couple PRs for, for example, and just tried to, to, to kind of find what I could do. Like what, what, what's what my unique kind of skill sets and in in a brain capacity or juices, whatever I I have, I wanted to dedicate to the space. And I was just took me a while to figure out what that might be. And I I worked on one project called CryptoCades, which, which was a way of like online gaming, uh, and you could win Bitcoin, which was kind of a, a fun little project for a little while. A little while, but it wasn't until 2019 that I really f- like find something that really kind of clicked with me, and that of course uh, was this project, this Thorchain project. Great. So uh, before we start off our discussion on ThorChain, it would be great to sort of give the audience a quick primer on how DEXs usually operate. So Chad, could you very briefly go over some of the basics of what is a DEX, mm-hmm. how it's different from a centralized exchange, mm-hmm. uh, what is a liquidity pool, what are wrap tokens, and then maybe lead us into what is ThorChain and how it is different from the usual DEXs that are out there, say yep. uh, Uniswap or SushiSwap, for example. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, I'll go at a, at a more interesting angle here, just to give some kind of context and history to it. Um, historically speaking, if you look at exchanges like in TradFi, most of the time, or almost all the time, um, they're order books, right? Where somebody puts up an asset and say, "I want to sell this thing for X number of dollars, or buy this thing for num- X number of dollars, or whatever it is," and then you create this order book of people, you know, buying and selling, and then when two people match it, you know, does a transaction and it, you know. Um, there's a, like a swap of some kind. Uh, and that's, you know, what works very well, very effectively. But the problem with that is it doesn't really work very well in crypto. That's why we don't see a whole lot of order books in general. It's because uh, blockchains are very inefficient, computationally speaking. So they're almost like, uh, you know, like TI-83 calculators in some sense. Like they're just very computationally sensitive, uh, which makes them difficult to program. It's like almost like in the old days when people were building, you know, programs in Pascal and, and Fortran, like the very early language of, of like computational science, like you only had like one megabyte of space or not even less than that of like memory, for example. And so you had to be very efficient about like how you wrote that code, uh, how you uh, use me- your memory. Like you had to be very, very, very uh, uh, cognizant of that. And as computers got faster and faster and faster, I mean, now we have like gigabits, gigabytes of memory and, and CPUs, like 60 plus cores and like there's all this craziness. Uh, developers can get a little bit more lazy about those things. But now we've kind of gone full circle and blockchains kind of bring us back to the Pascal days in a sense, or the, you know, the Fortran days. And you have to be very efficient about how you use space. And so order books are highly computationally expensive. They're very difficult to actually accomplish within a blockchain. And so that's why, you know, they didn't really work out particularly. There are some blockchains that do it. Um, but, but for the most part, they're not really heavily utilized. And it wasn't until I think Sushi, I'm sorry, Uniswap, excuse me, uh, Uniswap was the first one to use what's called the AMM model or the automated market maker. 
And this is the idea of, um, of using uh, liquidity pools or continuous liquidity pools, where people provide uh, assets into this pool to provide liquidity. There's X number of one asset and there's Y number of the other asset. And then that basically creates the price between those, the relationship between those two assets. And then people can trade and swap as they see fit. And that's all done in a highly decentralized way without, you know, the need of centralized parties to, um, that you need to sign up and like take a video of yourself holding your passport and, and all this kind of, you know, nonsense. My wife, actually, this is true. My, my wife has been trying to get on some exchanges to do some trading, uh, and she can't do it. Like she literally can't do it. They won't actually accept her onto the, the essentialized exchanges because, uh, she changed her name. We got married. She changed her name from her old name to her, to my last name, which causes a, a series of complexities and problems that make it difficult for her to actually get on an exchange because her passport has her old name and her, her actual name is the new name and like all this craziness. And like this kind of like, you know, friction is just ridiculous. It's, it's, you know. Finance should be a, a basic inalienable human right that everybody in the world has access to, to have basic financial services. Like that, that literally should be the reality of the world. But yet it's not, it hasn't been that way for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and years, thousands of years. But crypto and decentralized exchanges, uh, being part of that kind of equation is bringing that to a reality to the world, which is what makes me so excited about it and, and, and what makes it so powerful. So, so basically, uh, we talked about order books and uh, we talked about uh, AMMs and Uniswap. So, would you call Uniswap a DEX? So, so what exactly is a DEX? Yes. So, I would certainly call Uniswap a DEX. Um, the uh, so a DEX is a decentralized exchange. It's a it's an exchange that allows you to take asset A and trade it for asset B, whatever that might be, in a way that doesn't require you to you know, dox yourself or ask permission or any centralized or single entity can stop or you know uh, block you from access to such things. I think that's part of the the, the purpose and the point of DEX is, is that it creates um, um, a way of be able to control your your capital your net worth in a way without asking for permission or being censored so to bring thorchain into the picture so from what we understand thorchain basically allows swapping assets between multiple different chains not mm -hmm. just ethereum sure. uh, in a permissionless way so that's that's the real value that thorchain brings into the picture right could, could you could you speak a little bit about that Yes. So, uh, AMMs in general or decentralized exchanges in general up until, you know, a year ago or two years ago were largely like, um, focused around specific ecosystems, whether that be, um, Ethereum or, or, you know, um, Binance Smart Chain or some sort of like multi-asset chain with it, with an EVM in it or, or, um, programming language built into it, smart contracting. Um, which is what, which is awesome. It was a huge revolution onto itself just to create that, right? Which is fantastic. Um, but Thorchain kind of took it a step further and it was the first one, um, and continues to be one of the very few, uh, DEXs in the world that allows you to, uh, permissionly, permissionlessly trade from multiple assets on multiple chains. And in fact, Thorchain is the only one in the world that actually supports non EVM chains. Like it can support. Uh, any UTXO chain like Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, uh, it can support, you know, privacy cha chains like Monero or, or, or Zcash. Uh, it can support EVM chains, of course, like 
Ethereum and AVAX. Uh, it can support Cosmos chains like Atom or whatever. It literally has no limitations of what it can and cannot uh, support, which is why we consider it to be a chain agnostic decentralized exchange. Right. Could you speak a little bit more about Thorchain as a company, like how when it got started? Could you just speak a little bit about that journey? Yeah, sure. So one thing I would say is that, that is that Thorchain is not a company, right? There is no legal entity that exists. I don't. I'm not employed by it. Um, it is a project built and designed by anonymous and decentralized people across the entire planet. So it's not really a company. It's just a, a group of people contributing to a, a common goal in a sense. Got it. So yes, Thorchain, uh, in, at least in the iteration that we see now, it started with, uh, in 2019. I was going to a, a hackathon because I was, um, doing like an interview for, for like a CTO job at a, a different, you know, blockchain company. They were doing, uh, like air traffic control, like on a, on a blockchain for like drones and that kind of thing. And so, um, at the time I was living in, in Berlin, Berlin, Germany, and the, uh, CEO and the advisor of that, of that company, were all or happened to come into to Berlin for this hackathon like the following week, and so like oh like we'll all be in the same city you know just coincidentally why don't you come to this hackathon with us and uh, we'll you know we'll mess about for a couple of days we'll do the hackathon we'll code and you know that'll that'll be your your interview like it'll that'll be your audition for this job you know and I said all right let's do it uh, and so the myself and the advisor got together to to kind of work out some ideas and coding. And we kind of got together and thinking about like, oh, what should we be working on? Uh, what should we build? And he worked on Thorchain in a, the previous year that didn't actually work out. The technology wasn't quite there. The cryptography wasn't quite there yet. And he said like, oh, I've got this idea that I've been messing about with last year, but I kind of abandoned the project. But, you know, maybe you can muck, muck about with it and try it like, try it again and see what happens. And so him and I um, started to, to work on that. And we ended up winning that hackathon. We got, I think we won a bunch of Atom tokens. and. Uh, that was like the initial kind of birth of the code, I guess. Right. So, so basically, uh, just a curiosity question. So, what was the technology that was missing that 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 person said was not not available, so he couldn't make the uh, sure his original idea? Yeah. So, um, in order to do this this concept, you have to build a layer one chain. You can't do it as a smart contract on Ethereum. It's just completely impractical. And so you need to build a layer one chain. And at the time, there wasn't really a good framework yet to build a, a layer one chain. Um, today we have, you know, things like Cosmos and Polkadot and, and other things that might be coming down the road. But back then, those things existed, but they weren't quite, you know, ready for prime time quite yet, right? They're, they're still very, very much the early days. And so a year later, Cosmos had actually launched their kind of first SDK, uh, in which case, you know, that made it much more easy, much more practical to build a layer one chain without needing to like actually design an entire system like and all this kind of stuff, which is very complex and difficult to do. It takes many ah. years to build, many years to build. Uh, that right. was the first, first component. The second component that didn't exist at, in 2018 was what we call threshold signatures. Um, it's, it's this idea of a, a different way of doing a multi-sig than, than we typically see. And that basically enabled the, us as a, as a project. That we could not only, uh, connect to and support any chain, whether or not it does or does not support, uh, multi-sigs, because every chain supports TSS, whether they mean to or not. But it mm -hmm. also ensured that we could, we could ensure the, the same amount of security for every chain, because some chains, you know, will only allow you to have eight signatures and a multi-sig signature, and some chains will do 20, and some chains will do nothing, and 
And so that kind of variable of support for multi-sig made it impractical to be uh, uh, to do a good job have of a consistent, Yeah, to have a consistent security model. Uh, right. So if, if you had a situation where this chain supported, you know, eight signatures in a multi-sig, well, then like how decentralized can you really get, right? That becomes right. A, obviously a significant challenge. But with threshold signatures, you can have arbitrarily, you can have as many signers as you want. And the chain doesn't even, isn't even aware that more than one person is, is signing this, this signature or producing this signature. Only they work together through uh, eight rounds of communication to generate a signature. And then one or all of them doesn't even matter broadcast it to the chain and from the chain's perspective it's just a transaction like nothing else like the, the same thing as an eoa wallet from from its perspective uh eoa mm-hmm. meaning like just a, a, a simple single private key like you know standard wallet kind of thing uh it's not it's actually a, a, a threshold signature system where the private key doesn't never existed it never gets created and and they work together to create a signature but nobody ever creates the, the private key at any time so it's kind of hard to steal the private key of one of these asgard vaults uh, if the private key literally never even existed to begin with, and so that's one of the security aspects to the to the network. Right. To so, uh, to double click a little bit on the point about the layer one thing. So what may, you see, you mentioned uh, you were waiting for a layer one protocol to kind of uh, mature, and you didn't want it to be uh, an EVM. So what made you choose Tendermint and not say Polkadot, for example? Because I think more both of them were kind of there around the same time. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so is there anything specific about Tendermint? Maybe the they had threshold signatures or something that made you choose them, or is it just a coincidence of uh, when you picked? Well, well, TSS signatures are are a separate thing to the chain uh, framework that you might use. A complete separate okay. from each other. Uh, but at the time, Polkadot didn't really exist quite yet. I mean, Polkadot didn't, didn't really even exist much until like what, like a, a year ago, or you know, it's still True. kind of yeah, being, they're, being they're, they're still kind of getting into their mainnet right now, right? right? So they they weren't really uh, a reasonable you know uh, um, you know choice at that time. But I also am a big fan of the language uh, language GoLang. I've been using it uh, professionally for I don't know ten years. I'm going to say. Um, maybe even more than that. I quite, can't quite remember. Uh, whereas Polkadot, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's a Rust-based language. Nothing wrong with Rust. It's a great language as well. Just not one that I'm particularly familiar with. Uh, and Rust and Go are, are very similar in terms of the use cases that you would use. They're pretty inter, uh, interchangeable in terms of the use cases why you would use one or the other. Developers would probably argue with me on this point. They'd nitpick about like, oh, Go's got better routines for this, and blah blah blah. blah which they, they're right, but I'm just, I'm generalizing here. <laughs> yeah, sure. So so basically, the from what I understood is that the familiarity of the language and the fact that Tendermint was around uh, was kind of like what 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 drew drew you towards that one. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it was really the only choice at the time, other than just building your own from scratch, which. You know, I didn't Would want you? to do because it would be too expensive and time time consuming to do. There's something that already existed and it's already been validated. It's already been you know uh, audited by auditors and like all these things. It just made sense to use the the framework. Yeah, thing. I mean, I mean, building uh, building a layer one blockchain is uh, one uh, at scale is obviously no joke. Uh, yeah. there's there's a lot of a lot more than just writing some code. Um, right. If you look at them this way, like in the web two world, like. We had to build HTTP servers, right? That mm-hmm. uh, that that addressed the that adhered to the standards of the HTTP uh, protocol, the TCP/IP, and that kind of stuff. That stuff is actually really, really complicated, and most people have no idea how difficult and and you know 
that is. And thankfully, we have tons of frameworks that just abstract away the complexities of, of the HTTP protocol, uh, whether it be Ruby on Rails or, or you know, a bottle net, a bottle, and you know, yeah, Flask is another great one. Like there's, there's literally like a thousand and one, and they all complain, you know, say that they're the fastest, but like. It wouldn't be practical to ask everybody to like build their own HTTP server from scratch because they would spend six months doing it. You know, so you need these frameworks to exist, which is one of what I think what Cosmos brings to the world in a sense is, is that kind of that simple framework that Ruby on Rails is kind of like experience sort of, although it's not very Ruby on Rails y, but like, you know, that this that simplicity of being able to, to build an app without needing to worry about the underlying protocol that makes it all possible. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, to take a closer look basically into, you know, how ThorChain works, uh, let's start off by looking at, you know, what the ecosystem looks like from the top. So, uh, in the ThorChain ecosystem, I believe, uh, there's four kinds of participants. Uh, one, you have swappers. Mm-hmm. These are the people who basically use the liquidity pools to swap one asset with another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and second, you have liquidity providers, uh, mm-hmm. who are basically the people who provide liquidity to the pools. Mm-hmm. And uh, in return, they earn rewards for it. And uh, then you have node operators. Uh, these are the people who provide bonds and uh, they're paid to secure the system. Mm-hmm. Lastly, you have traders who basically monitor and balance the pools uh, in order to make profits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, of course, to make all of this happen, ThorChain has its own native coin called Rune. Mm-hmm. So, Chad, would you uh, like to go into the details of how ThorChain works? You know, what the incentive design is for all of these different network participants and uh, then maybe we can go into the more technical aspects of the technology that ThorChain uses. Yes. So in order to be able to be an exchange and be able to exchange one asset for another asset, whatever it might be, you need liquidity. You need somebody to provide both sides of that trade. And that's what we call liquidity providers, right? And so mm-hmm. in, in ThorChain's case, every liquidity pool is comprised of two assets. And one of those assets is always going to be room. And the other asset is going to be some other asset. It could be Bitcoin, could be Ethereum, could be, you know, Doge or, or, or Monero, could be whatever it is. But it's always Rune is one of the two assets in those pools. Um, that's there because it creates, um, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't fractionalize the liquidity. So if there's any Bitcoin in the network, it's all in one, one pool and that pool is as deep as possible, right? Which may, that's much more, uh, efficient for, from a trading perspective. That's the first kind of component, right? Is those people provide those that, that collateral um, or that liquidity, and then um, that liquidity is used to facilitate trades going from asset A to asset B, whatever, whatever direction that might be. And by doing so, the trader who's making the trade will pay some sort of fee. Like you leave a little bit of value left in the pool. So if you put in, you know, a thousand dollars of value, and then you're, and you're, in the end you're, you're going to get out nine hundred and ninety nine dollars or, or nine hundred ninety eight or whatever the number might be. And there's like a buck or two or some amount of money that's left behind in the pool, which those liquidity providers, you know, share equally relative to how much value they've contributed to the pool, how much of the pool they own. That's basically how that uh, fundamentally works. And so on the one hand, you have these traders who are saying, hey, I have some Bitcoin uh, and I, and I want to buy some Ethereum, for, for example. And they put a bunch of Bitcoin to the pool and then they take out a bunch of, you know, Ethereum. And so what happens in that scenario is that, that the pool previously, that the one side of the, uh, of the, uh, of the assets and the other side of the asset is equal in value and equal in dollar value, right? The quantity of coins is different, but the, but the dollar value is effectively the same. And so when you make a trade and you add a, a one, one asset and take away the second asset, whatever that 
that might be, you create an inequality in the system because now there's too much of the first asset and too little of the second asset. So there's an imbalance in the pool. And this is what we call uh, when our bots come into play, right? And so when our bot says to themselves, well, the pool is pricing these two assets as if these two pools, as if they are the same value. In reality, from a mark, from a market price perspective, they are not the same value that, that this asset's worth more of this and that one's worth, this pool is worth that. Sorry. Asset A within this pool is worth this and asset B in the pool is worth that. And so if I trade in the reverse direction through the opposite trade that the, that the first trader traded it with, then I can make some sort of profit. So I can put in a thousand dollars and maybe make a thousand dollars and fifty cents or, or a dollar or ten dollars or whatever it might be. And so that ensures that there's always liquidity, no matter how much trading occurs in one direction. There's always incentive for somebody else as an arbitrage bot, for example, to trade in the reverse direction to ensure that there's liquidity on both sides at all times. So that's that's how arbitrage bots uh, work, liquidity works, and how the, the traders work. So is an R-bot uh, a concept uh, within ThorChain, uh, or is that just another type of trader? It is a type of trader, right? So um, okay. in an AMM model, um, the AMM itself doesn't really have assets to be able to trade, especially true in ThorChain's yeah. case. And so you require external people, you know, bots or people or whatever, to, to, to right. look at the mar- market price of the Bitcoin asset within, you know, where the Bitcoin price is. And it just so happens that they are automated by or a script of some sort. So it happens Most automatically. Commonly. That's why yeah. you call them. Yeah, that's why you right. call that, them R-bots. Okay. That's, why, that's why you call them bots. They're, they're all pieces of code. They look at the, 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 the market price of Bitcoin, what it's being traded at. Let's just call it $18,000. And then it looks at the pool price of Bitcoin within ThorChain, and maybe it's uh, eight, uh, nineteen thousand. I'm making this up, but nineteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And so there's there's a, there's an arbitrage opportunity if I can if I can acquire you know uh, Bitcoin on the on, off the market for eighteen thousand and then sell it on ThorChain at nineteen thousand dollars. There's a you know a price difference, and I can make a little exactly. make a little move, yeah. right? And that's how they they they're providing a service to the, to the to the protocol to ensure that the price, the pool price always matches the market price. Uh, and right. they get paid, they get paid for doing so. So when, when a trader trades, he puts in $10 in, in, in fees that he leaves in the pool and an arbitrage bot will generally take out some percentage of that. And then the remaining would go to the, to the uh, LPs. So you also use some kind of third party Oracle to determine the market price to compare with the pool price. Uh, we don't as a protocol or as a project. There's individuals who run these R bots who you know are constantly correcting the price doing of these that. pools, doing that work. Uh, I don't do it, or, or you know, or anybody that I per- personally know. But got it. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Uh, so obviously that that's the liquidity provider and the uh, traders. W- what's the role of the swapper? Well, the swapper is just there to to be able to. Um, utilize the service right bitcoin i'm sorry thorchain itself is a, a public good network right it's, it's there okay to so provide. swapper is your end customer that wants right. to actually okay swap the right. Thing. right okay and then that leads to the final uh group which is the node operators yes uh, so uh maybe talk about what they do what's their role right so they have a really obviously very important job uh and so what they effectively do is that they run a full node of Bitcoin and a full node of Ethereum and a full node of AVAX and a full node of uh, BNB and whatever else. And they monitor 
the, the, the inbound and outbound transactions of the wallet addresses that the network owns, right? The, the BC1 address, the OX address, the BNB address, all these things, the Cosmos address, whatever, right? And so whenever somebody, like a trader, for example, wants to do a swap from Bitcoin to Ethereum, for example, they will send some Bitcoin to some BC1 address that the network owns, right? That the validators themselves, as a, as a collectively, that they own collectively. And they will, each validator will kind of observe that, you know, that Bob sent in one Bitcoin. And then in the memo of that transaction, it defines the, the, the transaction intent. I want to trade this Bitcoin for some Ethereum. And here's my OX address that I want to receive the Ethereum on. And here's the minimum amount of Ethereum that I actually want to receive on the other side. And if I can't get that amount, then just refund me my Bitcoin. And like, it kind of comes with that memo with the, with the transaction intent. And so as soon as the vast majority or two thirds majority of the, of all the different validators agree that the memo says this and that the Bitcoin was on the amount of one and was sent from Bob and blah, 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 blah. And they all get this consensus that like this transaction, this Bitcoin transaction is real, that it, that it happened, that it was on the Bitcoin block and it hasn't been reorged out or, or whatever. Then the network, you know, acts upon that information and, and actually does the business logic. To calculate, you know, how much Ethereum should this person get, right? And then once that's done, uh, the network assigns one of these vaults owned by this network and, and run by these validators to say, "Hey, you collected, you validators over there, you collectively, you know, you're assigned to send some Ethereum to Bob at this OX address. You know, go ahead and do it." And they collectively will sign that transaction, and the network will collectively observe that they actually did sign that transaction, and that transaction is legitimate. It's not like a malicious one or the theft of assets, or he didn't send them too much Ethereum or too little Ethereum or whatever, or even use too much gas. They just collectively say, oh, okay, this, everything's fine. Like this transaction is whitelisted. It's good. It's safe. So we don't need to like slash anybody or do anything malicious. Right. So that, that's interesting. So uh, obviously, when we're talking with the node operators now, we've got, from what I understood, two sets of node operators. One is the validating the validators, and then there's also uh, the people that actually come up, come to a consensus. Well, those two are the, are the same. They are the same. Okay, cool. Uh, so uh, as I was, that was just what I was going to ask. Uh, and one other thing I wanted to ask, and this is something that uh, was was unclear to me when I when I was reading. When if so, if I were to become a node operator, mm-hmm. is it necessary for me to have to run a client of every? Coin that I that is supported by by Thorchain, or can I choose to say, okay, I I want to I'm, I'm interested in, or I want to support only say Bitcoin and Ethereum and maybe uh, Avalanche uh, and and uh, or, or maybe uh, you know Bitcoin Cash, but uh, or is it that I have to do all of them? You you have to do all of them, uh, and the reason why that is is actually really important that it is because if you got to a situation. Where each individual person, or each individual validator selected the chains they liked and didn't select the chains they didn't like, whatever that might look like, you would end up with a scenario where the amount of security on the per chain would be variable, right? There's mm-hmm. 40 validators doing Bitcoin and there's 10 validators doing Binance Smart Chain or whatever. And there's, you know, 80 that are doing this one and there's two that are doing that one. So then you have this like real kind of decentralization problem of like, well, if not everybody's validating every chain, then you have this kind of variable security of each individual chain, which would make the code like a lot more complex because 
if there's only two validators that are validating the BNB chain, then what's to stop those two validators from just, you know, observing a fake transaction, right? That, that yeah, didn't yeah. actually occur, right? Uh, but okay, so that's a that's a very valid point, and uh, and I take that point. Uh, but okay, so then uh, that sounds to me like from a practical perspective, right? Uh, it becomes quite expensive for mm-hmm. somebody to become a node operator, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, I understand there's a amount of uh, uh, rune you have to bond as well. Uh, which is something we can talk about, uh, the bonding uh, process and how much you have to financially invest in addition to all this infrastructure that you have to set up and make sure that you're, it's all running 24-7. What is, it, what is there in it for the node operators? Why would I yeah. invest all this time and money? Right. So as a node operator, it, it costs you approximately like $3,500 a month of, of like infrastructure. To, to run, if you were to run, if you were going to run on something like AWS or DigitalOcean, something like that, about three and a half thousand per month. If you want to run on your own bare metal, then it would be closer to five thousand or ten thousand dollars in a single payment. And then you could run that for, you know, quite a while with yeah. no, no additional cost. And so it does have additional, have a cost to the, to the, to the, uh, validators for sure. And, but of course they're, they're getting, you know, yield from this themselves, right? So, um, they're providing the security of the network. And so they get paid for doing so. So. They get a cut of all the revenue, the system income that the network produces from people trading and swapping and doing these things. So when somebody trades, you know, does a swap and leaves $10 in the pool for the Bitcoin pool, some percentage of that goes, gets kind of pulled out. The value of that $10 gets pulled out and it goes to the validators. Ah, so it, the, the liquidity providers don't get the whole amount. It's kind of divided. Correct. Uh, between multiple parties. Okay. Yes, correct. They're they're getting a part of it. The nodes are getting a part of it. Technically, um, I think the uh, our bots are are kind of getting a little out there for themselves. Um, yeah. But all, all in all, it, it all kind of works out pretty well. Right. So, uh, uh, so for the node operators again. So there's like I said, I think there is a bonding or a financial incentive thing that they have to do. Right. They have to put up some collateral. Yes. Can, can you talk about what is the the mechanism around that? Sure, sure. So, like, imagine a scenario where people didn't have to do that, and they could just run a validator, you know, without putting up a bond. They could just spend that three and a half thousand dollars, whatever, per month to run it, and then get some kind of income. And but the problem with that scenario is that, um, well, if it's free to run a node, basically, then what's stopping somebody from just running two thirds majority of the nodes and then, you know, taking all the Bitcoin and taking all the Ethereum and taking all the assets and walking away with all everybody else's money and just this massive rug pull, which is mm-hmm. why you have to, you have to get them to bond something, something to hold a kind of a, a metaphorical guillotine that kind of is hanging over their neck that if they behave in a way that is, you know, counter to the rules of the network, then, then they'll get slashed. They'll lose value, you know, from their, their net worth will decrease. And so the network is specifically designed in a way to ensure that the the value of the bond that these validators you know put together is worth considerably more than the value of the you know Bitcoin and the Ethereum and the and the AVAX and all the the various non-native assets to the chain. Mm-hmm. And so if they if they do steal in some way, and you, you have to get a bunch of validators to collude in some way, which would be very difficult to do. But if you did, did get them to do it, then they would lose more money than they would gain because they would steal. You know, let's call it a hundred thousand dollars to say, and, and then they would get slashed. You know, one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars for for stealing that hundred thousand dollars. So they always lose out in the end. 
Okay, so that's basically the stick to the carrot of uh, getting uh, yield. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you also want to talk about, like on your website, you talk about the incentive pendulum for the working of Rune. Mm-hmm. That, that's a new concept. So could, could you shed some light on that as well? Sure. So uh, you get these two kind of class of users, right? You get these validators who are providing security to the network so that they, they make sure that the Bitcoin and the Ethereum is is held in you know in a way that is uh, that economically is safe to hold, right? That's the first component, and then you have the other people who are providing that the Bitcoin and the Ethereum providing that collateral, and so both of these people want to get the yield that the network is producing from, by providing this service. So then the question becomes: Well, how much of the, if if the network earns, let's just say you know a hundred thousand dollars in a day? I don't know. I'm just making numbers right now. Uh, what percentage of that hundred thousand dollars is going to go to the nodes, and what percentage of that hundred thousand dollars is going to go to the to the LPs for providing that capital? They both need to get a reward. How do you split between those two things? So we have this, this kind of concept, what we call the incentive pendulum. So that if the security is really, really, really high, we have tons of security, but not a lot of depth to the pools. Then we want to incentivize people who are providing security to like you're not going to get much yield, and we want to give their yield to or a larger percentage of a smaller percentage of the yield goes to them and a larger percentage of people goes to the LPs to incentivize people to start providing more capital and and building the depth of those pools and vice versa if the pools are very full almost the same value as the as the bond right as the security well then that's there's like they're not really quite imbalanced too much and so the network will naturally take away yield from the LPs and give more yield to the nodes, which incentivizes people to, to create nodes and add more rune and give more security and, and also incentivizes LPs to maybe leave because they're not making as much yield as they would like to make. And, and so they, the depth of the pools may drop a bit, which is what the network tries to do. It tries to maintain a two to one ratio, uh, between the LPs and the, and the bond for every, one rune in the in the pools uh it wants two rune in the bond just to create that perfect kind of balance between the two so i think uh we talked about rune uh in in the abstract so we know that rune is uh one part of the uh liquidity pools uh we know that rune is basically used as the incentive for the node operators for uh and and the uh, people running the network so can you tell us a little bit about what is the characteristics of of the rune uh, token? How much of it is there? Uh, what uh, was there an ICO, or how, how is that actually distributed? Mm-hmm. And uh, how does how does that kind of uh, how, what's the percentage of uh, holdings? Uh, yes. So the coin was first launched. I think it was like a week or two after that uh, hackathon that we were talking about earlier. Right. Um, and that was done through an IDO on the on the Binance chain. So mm. the first Rune asset initially was just a, a, a Binance you know chain BEP two asset. Okay. Today today it's a native asset to Thor chain to its own network, uh, which took years to, to get to that place. But it's oh it, it at launch it actually had a, a billion Rune max supply, uh, and then mm-hmm. later on we did like a massive burn to reduce that down to five hundred uh, million. That remains to be true today that it still has a, a hard limit of 500 billion in um, total supply. Mm-hmm. The circulating supply is a different number. I think that's closer to, I think it's like 250 or 260 or 270, maybe. I'm not really quite sure off the top of my head. Yep, yep. Uh, uh, so around half. 
around half about about okay. about half of it is uh, circulating and about half is um you know not circulating um to my knowledge i i haven't looked at the numbers in a long time so hopefully i didn't get that too wrong um mm-hmm. um and so yeah that that the purpose of the coin uh, is to is is to provide security more than any other reason because if you were to bond to thorchain with your validator node to use some external asset like let's just call it bitcoin for example well if you steal all the assets the value of the bitcoin that you you know, um, that you provided doesn't go anywhere, right? Because Bitcoin's still going to be Bitcoin, even if Thorchain gets, you know, exploited and loses all its, all its funds. Right. And so we need to make sure that if you put up a uh, hundred million dollars in, in Rune and then you steal, you know, uh, $70 million in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum and various assets, that the hundred million dollars you put up to begin with will go to zero, right? Because if you steal all the assets, all, all the assets are gone, like Rune's price will basically go to zero instantaneously. Yeah, and so we needed to have a, our own asset in order to provide economic security for the non-rune assets. It was a requirement to do so. Um, we couldn't have done it any other way. So, uh, but but why put a cap on it? Because uh, from my perspective, that actually will kind of li- limit the size of your network, right? Because you necessarily have only a certain amount of room room to spread around uh, no, amongst everybody. Be, it, honestly, we we could have put it at 10 million rune max supplied and wouldn't have made a difference. Like It's not so much the quantity of rune that exists within the pools or within the security. It's what's really more important than that is just the value of it. Like, what is the dollar value of it, right? Mm-hmm. So you could have you know, 10,000 rune in your, in your total bond, you know, but then at that point, you know, rune's price would be closer to Bitcoin's price probably or, or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah, okay. the quantity of coins doesn't really, doesn't really matter. What you're really going for is that the total value of the bond is high, as high as you can get it. Of course, you want more rune is better than less rune because the more rune, the more valuable, obviously, but also the more valuable the rune token is, the more valuable the bond is. And so. There's two ways of scaling the network in that sense. Is one is just having more rune in, in the security or more rune in the pools, or the other option is just you know the rune price just goes you know the market cap of rune goes to you know billions and billions of dollars, which it already has. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So I think uh, that's a kind of a good overview of uh, from a. Uh, non-technical perspective. Uh, I, I just wanted to kind of let's jump in into a little bit uh, around some of the some of the key technological uh, what do you call it artifacts that that mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, that that I find interesting about Thorchain. And mm-hmm. uh, one is this basically this thing called the uh, Bifrost protocol. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, could you maybe just uh, tell us uh, what this Bifrost protocol is and how that kind of works. Sure, sure. Uh, so Thorchain has a uh, Norse mythology kind of theme around it, and so a lot of the terminology within the, the names of these yeah. things are pulled upon. I was actually going Norse to ask mythology. you about that a uh, little later. Why, why, why Norse? Uh, were you kind? Of, were you guys in the hackathon? Kind of like. Uh, <laughs> uh, or enthusiasts or something like that. Well, to be to be honest, it, that was already established at the point that the point that I had got involved with the project. But I think one of the earlier people in the project is just you know grew up on Norse mythology as a kid. Like his mom would, would read him you know some stories uh, about you know Loki and and you know Heimdall and and you know Fandral and all these characters. 
so he just grew up with it and he just became a fan of it, of, of the Norse mythology kind of lore. Uh, right. And so when we we when we worked to build this thing, we just kind of maintained that kind of connection to, to his kind of to his uh, favoritism to that 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 mythology. And so the Bifrost specifically with within Norse mythology is like the 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 road bridge. between the yeah. bridge between between two two worlds, right? Two yes. universes, if you want to call it that. Uh, and so that's why we call the Bifrost Protocol Bifrost because its purpose, its main uh, point, is to do two things. It is to uh, a observe what is happening in another world, aka uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or some block other blockchain, and then the other point of it is to uh, sign transactions and broadcast transactions on foreign chains like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and whatever else. And so it mm-hmm. is the the bridge between Thorchain, its own state, the, what we call the state machine that holds all the state about transactions that have happened and and how much Bitcoin we have and how much Ethereum we have as a, as a protocol as a network. And it, it uh, kind of uh, is the 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 bridge to, so that we could communicate with those other chains and understand what is transpiring. And so, in some sense, what Bifrost helps us to accomplish is that it in, embeds the data about what happened on Bitcoin into the Thorchain state, so that Thorchain can then be have a consensus on top of many other consensus protocols. Like it's it's very ah. meta or or like in that movie Inception, but like you're literally yeah. taking a bunch of different consensus and then you're getting a, cons- a consensus on top of the consensus, right? Ah, so crazy to think the, about. So Bifrost is kind of the key that allows you to say that hey, Tor Chain is. Uh, I don't care what other external, uh, whether it is a uh, you know a. Uh, Ethereum uh, pro- proof of stake, or whether it is uh, uh, Tendermint uh, proof of stake, or uh, if it is uh, uh, proof of work like Bitcoin, it doesn't matter what what protocol mm-hmm. or whether it is transaction based or account based. Right. Uh, because the, the, bifrost, the, the, the bifrost abstracts away all that kind of complexity. All so that, that into a common. When uh, okay, when Thorchain okay. gets the information about what's happening on Bitcoin or or Ethereum. Thorchain's code is, is chain agnostic. It doesn't really care about UTXO versus EVM versus, you know, uh, uh, different gas fee models. Like that, all that's largely abstracted away by the Bifrost protocol. And Thorchain's right. just like, oh, it's an asset on a chain. Like, it doesn't really matter what the chain is or what it does or whatever. It doesn't really know. It doesn't really care. That's very interesting. So actually, you mentioned gas in pricing, and that was actually one of the things I had in mind as well was how how does that actually work i mean obviously gas has been well very famously recently but uh, hopefully not so much uh, in future uh, it would be it was one of the thorns in uh, the ethereum chain side right and uh, it gets always a big topic in terms of uh, 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 bitcoin or any kind of uh, layer 1 protocol the gas fees uh, design is always uh, uh, one of those mm-hmm. things that uh, leads to a controversy, but so how how do you? I mean, uh, obviously it it takes it takes money, a certain amount of uh, of your uh, of your uh, assets to actually conduct this particular transaction, right? Because mm-hmm. when the swapper comes in and gives you uh, asks provides uh, one coin and then asks for the other coin, you have to actually do the transaction. Right. Yep. Uh, right. And uh, uh, so, uh, is that kind of uh, have you thought about, or do you care about, you know, ways to optimize that, or is that kind of uh, blended in into the 
price that the uh, the overhead that the swapper has to give or how, where does that yes. money come from yeah it, it it comes in like so if you're if you're swapping bitcoin to ethereum for example and then you know you're going to get you know we'll just call it 10 eth is your thing mm-hmm. the network at that point before it sends you your 10 eth it has to, to pay for a couple extra fees one of those is what we call the outbound fee which is basically the gas fee uh and then there's also a network fee of like i think it's like 30 cents or something like this that's pretty small but like mm-hmm. the network has to uh, understand each each chain has a different gas design, right? Some are mm-hmm. like you know demand based, like Ethereum and and Bitcoin, and some are static, like you know Binance, for example, and some are you know computed, right? Based upon the, the there's a there's a bunch of different mechanisms of how gas is done, and the chain has to understand all of those, right? And so effect, effectively, what happens is each Bifrost will will kind of report to Thorchain and say, hey. I think the gas amount, like, you know, the price per, per sat or whatever, or, or whatever, uh, is X or Y or Z. And it just tells the network that. And the network reaches a consensus of what the actual, like, current gas prices on Ethereum or current gas price on Bitcoin. And then it, it multiplies that by, I can't remember if it's 1.3x, 1.5x or 3x. I can't remember off the top of my head which one it is, but, uh, mm-hmm. let's just call it 1.5x, for example, or, or whatever. Uh, it multiplies the value of the current gas prices times 1.5 and then deducts that from your, your ether that you're receiving. Right. So you get slightly okay. less ether. Um, and then, you know, the, the pool that pays the gas, I kind of give a bad example. So let me think of a different example. that makes it a little clearer. So imagine you're going from, um, Bitcoin to USDC on Ethereum and your mm-hmm. USDC you're going to receive is like a thousand USDC, for example. Mm-hmm. But the, the cost, the gas cost right now is 30 bucks, right? And so the network will deduct, you know, I think it's like, let's just call it 40 bucks or 45 bucks, some quantity extra, uh, just to, just to give some buffer zone so that if the gas price, you know, skyrockets one, which, which it can and does, that the, the, that the network itself is not subsidizing these, the gas costs. We don't want to do that. We don't want right to subsidize those uh, and and this is over and above the uh yield uh yield that the lp gets right yes this is a separate separate thing from that right and so and eventually what happens is um when you when you spend that gas and say you spend the, the it actually spent uh we we take $45 of value out of out of your you know your usdc and then we basically what we do with that $45 45 Dollars we swap it to rune, just hold it uh, in a you know in a reserve temporarily, right? So we put forty five dollars worth of of rune into into this reserve temporarily, and then what actually happens is once the transaction is signed, if ether is required to, to pay for the gas, and so maybe we end up spending thirty five dollars of ether in order to do so. So now the the people who provided liquidity into the ether pool are now down thirty five dollars because we we burnt some of their ether to pay for gas for the swapper. On USDC, ah, okay. so now, so they're getting kind of you know screwed, quote unquote, at the moment. They're just paying for everybody else's gas fees, which obviously you know people who are providing money for they're they're not liking that very much, right? So as soon as we make the make the uh, observation of the outbound transaction, just as the network says, oh, there goes the USDC, like, and apparently it spent thirty five dollars worth of ether to 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 on gas for this particular thing. Now we go back to that reserve. We put $45 in late uh, earlier and we say, Hey, we need $35 worth of rune to put into the Ethereum pool 
to to you know give back balance the value yeah. to balance it out so that so that the 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 LPs of the of the of the of the Ethereum pool aren't getting aren't paying for everybody else's gas and subsidizing everybody else's gas and neither is the network itself subsidizing other people's gas as well. Right. Okay. That's clear. Uh, and so so is is that gas fees calculation also part of your Bifrost protocol uh, code or is that Something no, the, that is... the the Bifrost protocol will, will report to the to the Thorchain uh, blockchain. It'll report what it it observes as the current cost of gas on that oh, particular right. chain. Okay. Okay. But then the the Thorchain blockchain itself will actually calculate what the fee will actually be, and it could be high and it could be low. It just depends upon what the you know right what's going on on the Ethereum blockchain. So these numbers that you're coming back right, so it says you know one point five or three x and a certain percentage of your uh, liquidity and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, let's call them magic numbers. Uh, how are they kind of managed? Because I would imagine that in the real world, as inflation happens or, uh, you know, uh, as uh, uh, life happens, right? Uh, th- these kind of calculations that you did in 2019 probably may not be valid uh, continuously. So what is the mechanism that you have to kind of make sure that uh, everything is still fair going forward. Well, that's part of what the, what the Bifrost protocol does is that it, it reports uh, very often, very frequently to the Thorchain network what the actual gas cost is. We're not, we're not embedding the gas costs on day one. No, of I, I, no I, I get that. I'm, I'm not talking about the gas cost itself. I'm talking about that multiple that you did, right? The buffer that you put oh, in. Oh, yeah. And, and there's also the... Uh, the amount of yield that you're giving to a particular liquidity pool. I would imagine that that's basically also a arbitrary number that somebody came up with at some point, correct? Yes. So the 1.5 number, um, and I can't, and, and I, forgive me, I can't remember if it's 1.5 or 3. And I, I, I just, my brain no, yeah, it, it can be X. I'm not, it, I'm not whatever a, X is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that works pretty well. I mean, there, there can be scenarios where we end up spending more gas than we wanted to. Uh, there are there are, there are max gas things that are that are there for for like safety purposes. We don't get burned by miners or something crazy like this. But um, so there are protections in that scenario. But the vast majority, you know, of of of, of uh, outbound transactions cost less than the one point five, whatever that number is. And so the network doesn't you know take on much risk at all in, in that particular context. Uh, and, and I know, but but my point basically is that's that's in today's world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how uh, what happens if it if if you need to make that change? Who does that change? Oh, okay, yes. Um, so that is done through uh, what we call Mamir, and so Mamir is basically like uh, the configuration of the network, and so Mamir is controlled by um, the nodes primarily, and so they if they feel they wanted to increase that from one point five to one point eight or whatever, they could just vote. Uh, as validators and and make the change right and once once a two thirds majority of validators make that change, uh, then um, that would be you know the change would be made. Right. So so this basically is so it's not like a decentralized autonomous organization type of voting protocol or anything like that. This is just at some point somebody asks and uh, it, it gets changed. Uh, well, I see. Yeah, so I don't really personally like DAOs all that much personally, just because, uh, they don't really, they're not very effective. They're not very, they don't work very well because most of the time when you're voting with a DAO, you're, you only really get like one or two or 5% of people actually participating. This recent thing we saw with MakerDAO did this massive change that was like, 
uh, making it more centralized. And in the end, it was like, like it was one dude that determined what was going to happen, right? Like, oh, right. And, and it was him. It was him. He's the one that suggested the, the change, and then he he approved it himself. <laughs> so I know it's it's it's, uh, it's not it's not a it's not a great uh, model uh, if you do things uh, if if it's right. So the, the the important thing about governance that I think people are missing out on is that uh, in order to make some sort of change to the network, whatever change it might be. You, you need to have 50% or more, 51% ideally, to, or more to, to contribute to the decision. You don't ever want to have 1% or 5% controlling the 95% or whatever. Like that's just, that's ridiculous. We should never allow such a thing in, in crypto land. The same thing with Bitcoin, right? You can't just change Bitcoin to be like, you know, change the block size, for example, by, you know, 10 of the miners coming together and making the change. Like that's silly. You need to get at least fifty-one percent of the mining a hash rate to, to come together to actually make the determination. And so Thorchain is very similar to this in that you can't just make a change by some minority participating. It requires a two a, a supermajority or two-thirds majority to, to to come together to agree on whatever change is happening. Like literally every change in the network requires two-thirds majority of people to agree. Okay. Cool. Uh, so, uh, in the interest of time, I, I just noticed we've been uh, talking for about an hour now. Uh, so, uh, there was just one more topic that we kind of like wanted to really wanted to talk to you about, which is uh, the uh, integration with Shapeshift. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this is something that's been uh, uh, in the news, both on your website and around uh, uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, could you kind of give us an overview of what that is and what the integration is and uh, sure. how that's going to work? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, it it already happened. It happened, you know, like a year and a half ago. So mm-hmm. when Shapeshift was founded in 2014, the the intention uh, initially was to create a a, a non um, non custodial non KYC you know exchange to be able to swap one asset for another asset, whether it be Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Monero or, or whatever it might be. Um, and that was the vision of it, which was an amazing vision to have. And unfortunately, um, the, the people behind Shapeshift, uh, you know, Eric Voorhees and other people that were, uh, building it and running it, uh, they got a knock on their door from regulators and they're saying, Hey, you, you can't do this. You need to KYC people. And so they were forced to KYC people from the, from the government, which is antithetical mm-hmm. to everything that they believe as, as a, as a company. Uh, and so when they learned about Thorchain and how that we accomplished the task of what they were tr- trying to do and uh, allowing or facilitating trades across, across chains without, you know, requiring, uh, KYC, they were, you know, became, you know, huge fans of the project. And so literally the day that Thorchain launched its multi-chain chaos net, which was, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, around April, I think, yeah, like a little over a year and a half. Um, they ripped out their backend and, you know, replaced it with Thorchain, right? And that actually enabled them to move from a corporation, like an actual legal entity within the United States of America, to become a, a DAO and, and become a decentralized organization. Okay. And and so so now basically when you go to Shapeshift, you're actually running Thorchain in the background? Is that is that what that is? Yeah. I mean they they integrate with a bunch of different uh, DEXs like Uni and other things as well, but but yes, if you're trading Bitcoin for anything else or receiving Bitcoin or whatever, you're actually, you know, transacting with Thorchain. And that's actually one of the things that we're, we're, we're gearing to do as a, as a, as a project. We, we don't want to be in your face, in your palm, the thing that you talk to. We want yeah. to integrate and interface with every DEX we can interface with, every UI, every wallet, 
and have all of them just you know make it easy that when you so, go to so you want to be the backbone you want to be the stripe we want to be the back we want to be the the swift of of crypto in some sense and that and that we are used constantly and all the time but nobody may not even be, know that they're using it like trust wallet for example is integrating with thorchain and so very soon on trust wallet's wallet you can just like click on your wallet and say oh i got bitcoin and i want ethereum and click click and you're done right no signups no kyc no taking photos of your passport no none of this stuff you can just say, click, click, I want this, and you get it, right? Like, and that's the beauty and, and brilliance of what Thorchain's doing. Cool. Uh, I think uh, we've kind of covered most of what we wanted to cover. There were a couple of other things also, but in the interest of time. Is there uh, uh, anything, Chad, that uh, uh, you want to say or you want to kind of, uh, you know, a shout out you want to do to our community? Uh, oh, of course. I mean, we're, we're actively building. Um, we're ap- actively shipping. We haven't just, you know, sat down and kind of chilled out. Uh, we recently launched a major new feature that I think would really get your 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 uh, listeners excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it Thorchain Savers, but basically what it allows you to do is provide uh, Bitcoin into the Thorchain network and earn more Bitcoin, right? It, it literally don't take on any price risk to any other asset. And because of that, there's no impermanent loss that, that is experienced by you as a user. And so you literally can just throw in some Bitcoin and earn more Bitcoin, and you're never exposed to the room price or any other asset for that matter. It's just a single asset, you know, interest account. Sort of what BlockFi was doing back in the day before they kind of shut down and all these things. But like you could put in an asset and get yield in an asset, kind of like staking a little bit, kind of, sort mm-hmm. of. Uh, and all the in- the income just comes from the Bitcoin pool and all the trades and swaps that are happening there. Cool. KK, you want to kind of uh, jump in and maybe wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I just want to say that, you know, it's been a really great conversation, Chad. And uh, looking at the larger picture of crypto as a whole, right? Like, mm-hmm. I do think that you've built one of the most important pieces of the puzzle, without which uh, decentralization would be very difficult to achieve sure. for crypto as a whole. So once again, uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with us. And uh, all the best to you and your team. I appreciate it. You should you should have me back again. We'll We'll do a deep dive into the you know, savers and our lending design and like all these other things that are also very exciting. That's that's a great idea, oh, Chad. Absolutely. I, I kind of got the feeling that uh, an hour was not enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll take you up on yeah, that. We'd we'll love to have you back. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, yes, I have my information. So reach out again if you want to do a follow-up or, you know, round two. Of, we got through the basics, the fundamentals. Let's get into the exciting stuff that really is going to change DeFi forever. Cool. Awesome. All right, guys. Thanks so much for your time. Once again, that was Chad Barraford from Thorchain. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us at bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.